Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. You're listening to Upfront. I'm Brian edwards Teeker. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the latest developments in the world of COVID-19 news and science. Our guest and yours, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, the, the overwhelming question we've gotten through our inbox over the past few days, uh, as I'm sure you might imagine, is about the the new variant of interest that the CDC has added to its tracker. It estimates about 10% of new cases in the United States are now a variant officially known as XBB.1.16. The colloquial name that has been applied to it uh, by the internet, as far as I can tell, although it's entered common usage, is Arcturus. Uh, what do we know about it? Well, we um, have been watching this particular subvariant of Omicron now for a while. And as you stated, it's, it's growing. It's the fastest growing of the um, subvariants. It's on a trajectory within a few weeks to really become the predominant subvariant that's circulating here in the United States. It's already been circulating quite a bit throughout the rest of the world. Uh, India has been hit particularly hard with it. It um, has caused the largest surge that they've seen in the last seven months. So it's it's certainly an important um, subvariant of Omicron, and it is it is increasing cases in different parts of the world. What we know about the virus itself is that it's more transmissible than the current subvariants that are circulating. And this is not surprising because uh, for a virus to outcompete another virus, it has to be more transmissible. And this one is. It's hard to believe because Omicron and all of its other subvariants have been so transmissible, but this, this guy is really quite transmissible. So easy to spread. The good news is that we haven't seen any signals that suggest increased virulence. By that, I mean there are no signs that this subvariant, XBB.1.16, Arcturus, uh, makes us sicker than the other subvariants that we've seen. That's really good news. But it's outcompeting every, everybody else because of its transmissibility. So we had, as you said, close to 10% of all the isolates um, projected in the United States for this last week, last Friday. Um, are this new represent this new variant? Uh, it was about seven percent the week before. It was about five, five and a half, about five percent the week before that, then two percent. So it's growing. The slope of its growth is going up fairly rapidly. So I expect this is going to be the player that we're going to be seeing. 
the biggest question that I get, Brian, is what does this mean? Um, and right now we're not seeing COVID cases increasing, as a matter of fact, even though the case counts are so poorly recorded, uh, we're not seeing an increase there. We're not seeing an increase in hospitalizations. We're not seeing an increase in deaths. So that's good news, even with this new player in town. Although those would all be uh, lagging indicators, particularly if the virus, although it's uh, a growing share of cases, is still only a minor portion of them. That's absolutely right. Yeah, hospitalizations are lagging by at least four weeks, sometimes longer. Um, excuse me, deaths are in hospitalizations by at least two weeks, sometimes longer. So we are looking in the rearview mirror when we talk about that. It would be nice to um, have accurate case counts, but we just aren't doing enough testing to have that. Now, there is some other good news uh, in reference to that, and that is wastewater analysis. It's not showing an increase in most of the country now. As a matter of fact, it's showing a decrease in much of the country. So that suggests, uh, that's actually something that precedes our case counts going up. So that suggests that we are in, um, I think it's fair to say we are in a very good place with COVID relative to every place we've been throughout the pandemic. Questions from listeners. Bonnie in Mill Valley wrote in to ask if the uh, bivalent booster currently on offer is protective against the the new variant of interest, XBB.1.16. We just don't have any data about that, but uh, looking at the structure of this new subvariant suggests that the new bivalent vaccine, or now it's not so new, it's uh, over six months old, um, is is active against this. That is the immunity we get from this bivalent vaccine should give us good protection against um, XBB.1.16. Um, a related follow-up, this is from Elizabeth in San Francisco, who is eligible for the second round that the FDA and CDC have just signed off on the new bivalent booster. Um, she is wondering, even though her last shot was in September, if she should wait until they have a new vaccine specifically targeted to the new strain. Well, if she's a candidate for the bivalent vaccine as a booster, um, I would suggest getting it. The candidates are people 65 and over. That's the largest group of people who are candidates. The other large candidate are people who are immunosuppressed at any age, almost any age. Um, the reason for the age cutoff is that when you look at who's hospitalized, uh, it's almost always older people. That's the, the vast, vast majority of people being hospitalized and dying, unfortunately, are older people. Now, when you break that down further, you can see that... Um, the vast majority of those older people who are dying are people who are not vaccinated. So getting vaccinated at any age offers a lot of protection. We know that the booster that Elizabeth got in September, she's now almost seven months out, um, a lot of the immunity that she got from that booster has waned in terms of protecting against getting infected and getting mild to moderate disease. All the evidence we have now suggests that the immunity we got from that booster, let's say seven months ago, is still giving a pretty good degree of protection against hospitalization and death. But I, and I think here, this is an area where we'll hear uh, different infectious disease specialists and public health people differ a little bit. 
my feeling is, again, if you're a candidate for it, I would go get it. And I'll put my money where my mouth is because I got the booster um, on Friday. I'm going to read into her concern here that she's worried she might not be able to get the next version of the vaccine right away. Um, No, that's that that should be a concern. Um, the, The next, whatever the new vaccine will be, whether it's going to be the same one we got last fall and now offered as a booster or whether it's going to be a modification of that, that's going to be offered to everybody. But this does play a little bit into timing and as, um, uh, we've heard in the past from Bob Walker, it's like timing is like um, he equated it to timing the stock market. I think that's a fair analogy. But still, we know that if you get, um, there's an optimal time to get a booster. Um, if you get it too soon, it may not be as effective. And what too soon probably translates into, for most people, is within six months. So I think you want to play the game to say that if I got a booster now in late April or May, then six months from now would take me to November or late October. And that's when the new booster would be available and you should get a very good boost from that. So I think if people are on the fence about deciding whether they want to get a booster and they're candidates for this, I would try and make the decision within the next few weeks. The idea being here that you would still be eligible for your next booster before the seasonal surge in uh, respiratory diseases. There's a, a, a expected seasonal surge in influenza. A lot of people in your field seem to be expecting COVID to settle into that seasonal pattern at some point as well. Right. That's, that's, uh, that's the strategy. But again, it's based upon making a lot of assumptions and I think that um, even though we've seen COVID remain fairly quiet and we did not have a big surge at all in, in the winter, um, we're certainly, a lot of people are thinking that this is the way it's just going to remain now. And um, I've been so humbled by this virus that um, I have no idea what it's going to be doing in the summer or, or late fall, winter. All right, uh, let's open up the phone lines, then I'll, I'll have a couple more email questions for you while the phone lines are filling. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He's here to answer your question about COVID-19, 1-800-958-9008, to ask that question over the phone. It's 1-800-958-9008. Uh, next question comes from someone... Who didn't write their name at the bottom of their email, so we'll just call this anonymous. They say, I'm immunosuppressed due to medication I must take for chronic inflammatory illness. I'm also 73. I'm always very grateful when you mention and include the immunosuppressed and immunocompromised population in your remarks. Do you know of any studies of this population regarding the rates of infection and death and the strength of the response to the vaccines? There are a lot of studies looking at people who are immunosuppressed either for medication or because of an underlying disease. The problem is that this is not a monolithic group. 
the problem in terms of understanding this group well. It's not monolithic in the sense that some people are profoundly immunosuppressed because of medications they may take or their underlying disease. And some people are moderately immunosuppressed and some people are only a little bit immunosuppressed. So when you lump all these people together, we're probably talking about close to 10 million Americans. So it's a large group of people. When you lump all these people together, you get results that may not pertain to you. But generally speaking, immunosuppression is a major risk factor for a bad outcome if you get COVID. And that's the best we can say in terms of generalities. In terms of specific numbers, I don't think that's very fruitful. The, the current recommendations by the FDA and the CDC for the for the booster dose that could be given right now, is that if you're significantly immunosuppressed, and you need to determine that with your physician, but if you are, uh, they're saying you could get the, the booster within four months, even within two months of your last dose to give you protection. So um, this is a, an important a discussion you need to have with your physician in terms of how often to get that booster. But that's the current recommendation that came out last week. 1-800-958-9008 for your COVID questions. One more quick one from the email before we go to the phones. Uh, John, who did not append a city to his email, asked about... This is a follow-up to your conversation about intranasal vaccines. He wonders if the kind of intranasal steroids that people use for things like allergies might lower their protection against COVID? That question has come up quite a bit, and we haven't seen any data to um, support that hypothesis. It, it seems like a reasonable assumption that one could make that if you're using intranasal steroids, that that would suppress your immune response locally and make, might make you more susceptible, but we haven't really seen that. So if those intranasal steroids are really important, um, and again, that's a decision you and your doctor should be making. But if they are really important um, and your doctor feels you need to continue them and you feel you need to continue them, then certainly do so. <clears throat> um, on the other hand, I would take the minimal amount necessary to control your symptomatology. You know, that, Brian, right. that brings for, for some people, it's, it's symptom relief. For some people, those intranasal steroids are like the thing that keeps a stuffy nose from blossoming into an excruciating sinus infection. Exactly. Thank you. You know, that brought to my mind indirectly uh, a previous discussion we were having about how often to get the boosters and trying to time them. One other thing to put into your calculus about timing when to get the booster is what you're going to be doing. So, for example, let's say that you've got a big trip planned out of the country and you really that's not where you want to get covid so that might push you to be getting the vaccine at a time that would give you optimal protection for that trip. So there may be a big party that you need to attend to. Um, so <clears throat> those are some other considerations in terms of when to get the booster. All right. Uh, we've got callers on the line at 1-800-958-9008. Let's start in Richmond, where Richard is waiting patiently. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I, my question is about masking. So uh, me and my family, we have three different levels of masking. We have a medical procedure mask, double medical procedure mask, and N95. 
um, because we have a disabled person in our household and we're trying to be extra careful. Um, are there any updates on the efficacy of masking? Sure. Um, there have been continuously studies done on the efficacy of masking, so it's a really an important question, Richard. The Clearly, the gold standard is the N95, and just a teeny, teeny bit below that would be the uh, KN95. Um, the, the, um, those are the ones you should be wearing if you really want to protect yourself against getting infected. A surgical mask uh, gives protection that's considerably less than that. It offers a little bit, but not a lot. And the cloth masks offer a lot less than a surgical mask. The surgical masks um, have always been designed really to protect people out, uh, people from getting infected from you. So they're good with that. That's why surgeons wear them in surgery. But in terms they're, of... They're to keep like, droplets from flying from a surgeon's mass, mouth into an open wound, <laughs> just like solving a different problem than respiratory disease transmission. Thank you. Well put. Um, so I, I would suggest to you that if, you, if, if you've got a disabled person in your home and you really want to protect that person, that I would aim for the, the gold standard. Uh, as long as they fit well um, and you'll wear them because they're they're a little harder to wear in terms of you have to work a little harder to breathe. You mentioned double masking, and there haven't been a lot of studies that have looked at that, but there was one that caught my eye in the last couple months, and it, it suggested that if you wore like a double mask with a, the surgical masks, you think one plus one would be two, but uh, it altered the fit of the mask when you had put a second one over it or even a second one over an N95. So um, and that alteration allowed air to come in. So these masks aren't designed to have be double masked in terms of giving increased protection. They may actually be the obverse. Oh, that's interesting. I had not heard that before. Uh, what about the reverse, putting an N95 over a surgical mask, as, as I remember some people were doing earlier in the pandemic? I don't think that was studied. Um, I do, at least I don't recall studies about that. That would be interesting to look at. My guess is because the N95 really has to create a good seal um, that mm -hmm. putting it over a surgical mask would decrease that seal that you get. So it might, um, I'd be concerned that it might not work and not, might actually make the N95 work less well. Maybe a, a good rule of thumb is that if you want the masks to work as well as they do in NIOSH testing, uh, use them the way they are tested by NIOSH. <laughs> One mask over your mouth and nose with the straps in the right place. You got it. All right. Uh, let's go to the Central Valley for our next call. John is on the line. Good morning, John. John, you with us? John in Fresno, going once. Okay. Hello, uh, can you hear like me? John may have taken a break. We will go to the Hello, South Bay for our next call. Where... John, you're on. What's your question? Can you hear me? All right, John's having some trouble. We're going to go to the South Bay. Jessica is on the line. Good morning. Jessica, are you with us? Hi, good morning. 
What's your question, Hi, Jessica? Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Um, I tried to schedule a, a COVID vaccine first shot with uh, Kaiser for my um, 15-month-old son, and they called the same day to cancel because they said the CDC had some updates on the vaccines, and they weren't sure when they were going to get the first and second doses for children. Um, so I was just, I, I hadn't heard any updates about that, so I was just curious to know if Dr. Schwartzman knows what they're talking about. Dr. Schwartzberg? Sure. Um, actually, uh, the CDC met Thursday or Let's see, they met last Thursday, and uh, they did address children. And so Kaiser, he probably called either Thursday or Friday, and Kaiser hadn't you know, been able to make the changes yet, but they should have the changes made this week. The bottom line is that um, the vaccine will be offered to children, I think, and you'd have to check on this, I think it's six and above, um, and it's, it's the bivalent booster shot that they would get. But Kaiser should have that uh, information from the CDC now and make, have made those changes. So I'd suggest recontacting them, Jessica. So they'll be getting the bivalent as the primary vaccine series now? Right. We're, the One of the big changes is that that's the vaccine that's available for everybody. If you've not been vaccinated before, you would get the bivalent shot. And as a matter of fact, you just get one and that's based upon the observation that probably close to 95, 97% of Americans have either been, either have immunity previously from vaccination or have immunity from being infected. So there are very few Americans now left who don't have some degree of immunity to this virus. So if you've never been vaccinated, there's a high chance you've probably been infected in the past. And the CDC is recommending just one uh, jab. All right, Dr. Schwartzberg, uh, let's take a, a quick one from the email. Uh, we, we would call this ending on a forward in the business. Uh, Julie in El Sobrante wants to know how much to worry about bird flu, H5N1. Uh, she is specifically wondering about keeping bird feeders away from the house and not tossing out feed near the home. Uh, the concern here being a bad strain of bird flu that is killing birds, maybe close to making a hop to people soon. Yeah, this is you know this is a real tragedy to the bird population worldwide. It's they're falling out of the sky. Um, we're losing here in California condors, uh, eagles. It's just it's it's decimating the bird population around the world. This is as you said, it's the H5N1. It has been documented to transmit rarely to human beings, uh, so it hasn't figured out how to how to jump from birds to humans. Um, no one knows how much to worry about this. I think from a public health policy, the answer is that we're very concerned and that we need to plan for the fact that this virus could figure out a way to transmit to humans. Um, the chances of that happening, I think, are well less than 50%. Um, but even if there's a very small chance of this happening, uh, we have to be prepared for that. In terms of the practical questions you're asking, um, 
I, I have not read any recommendations about not having bird feeders and, and bird feed, et cetera. I don't think that's a major issue. Certainly, if there's a dead bird around, you, around I would not be uh, contacting that. I would just contact um, animal control. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, we'll leave it there for this week. Thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. John Swartzberg is Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He joins us every Monday after 7.30 news headlines to answer questions about new developments concerning COVID-19 and to take questions from you. Um, He also occasionally fields questions about other infectious diseases that hit the news. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.